Hello and welcome to Further Up and Further In podcast. Uh, this is now episode 19 of the podcast in which we'll discuss the final chapter of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe titled The Hunting of the White Stag. And this is a beautiful chapter for a number of reasons. It closes out Lewis's first novel in the series of Narnia. Uh, and according to some, before he even had a, a plan to write seven, um, I believe that ultimately his plan was to write seven books or three. I think he revealed that information to someone in the letter. But at the end of the novel as a whole, at the end of this chapter, he mentions how this, if the professor is right, is the beginning of the adventures in Narnia. So this is the end of this first grand romance, this great fairy tale, uh, where the curse of barrenness is destroyed by the willing death of Aslan, the king, to die for Edmund. The grand story of Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy draws to a close. And for me personally, this is such a beautiful chapter because of the radiant, diaphanous magic that he infuses into this image of a white stag uh, that King Peter and King Edmund and Queen Susan and Queen Lucy all end up pursuing on horseback. And I just, I find that to be one of the most enchanting, uh, romantic uh, images that these kings and queens bounding on horseback through the beautiful landscape of Narnia, chasing after this white stag. Uh, that legend has it, if you catch it, will grant you wishes. And I just, I think Lewis is drawing on so much of the power of fairy tale to evoke these images and these sequences that linger with us for ages and ages and ages. Who wouldn't want to chase the white stag through the woods of Narnia? Uh, it's a beautiful image. But before we get there, the chapter begins, chapter 17, the hunting of the white stag begins with the ending of the first battle of Baruna. So um, luckily, Lewis spares his readers any sort of graphic or gory, violent detail of the battle. We just simply have a few details of how it goes. Um, but we get this interesting statement on what happens to the enemy when the white witch uh, is losing, what happens when the tide turns. Uh, Lewis says, when those who were still living saw that the witch was dead, they either gave themselves up or took flight, which is a telling statement of what evil does when it realizes its true condition, that when the forces of darkness will ultimately and eternally recognize the futility of their state, they will give themselves up or take flight, uh, that the enemy is most certainly vanquished when the witch is killed. And Lewis goes into a description of how that happens. Peter approaches Aslan and says it was all Edmund's doing, which is typical of Peter to be um, humble, especially at this part in his development when he's been in Narnia several days and the Narnian air and atmosphere is having its effect on him, that he is becoming a servant leader. He's becoming a humble warrior. He's becoming great in the Narnian sense. He says it was all Edmund's doing. We'd have been beaten if it hadn't been for him, the witch was turning our troops into stone right and left, but nothing would stop him. Notice that. And, and this is the first occasion of, of several in this chapter where perseverance and endurance is going to be a key theme, not just physically, but also spiritually, that uh, the perseverance of salvation, the perseverance of our identity in Christ will be evoked, as well as a sense of persevering 
physically, emotionally, in the battle, which he does. Nothing would stop him, Peter says. He fought his way through three ogres to where she was just turning one of your leopards into a statue. And when he reached her, he had the sense to bring his sword smashing down on her wand instead of trying to go for her directly. Now, this is an important statement. Not only is Edmund clever and uh, wise in this sense, which is certainly a growth and a maturity of his character from when he first entered the wardrobe, when he was something of a sneak and uh, certainly becomes a traitor selling his siblings out. But now we see Edmund as this fierce warrior. And King Edmund himself, King Edmund the Just, will be described as this grave and quiet man. That there's a great sense of maturation and development that is awarded to his character. But in this scene, we see his valor and his nobility. That like Peter, in Peter's first fight against the wolf, uh, when he receives his sword from Father Christmas and he is given his first test to slay the wolf, that Peter assumes this masculine air of responsibility. Doug Wilson says that masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. That's what manhood is, the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. And we saw that with Peter, uh, where he claimed things to be his fault, that he was too hard on Edmund and so on. And now we see it in Edmund, that he too is assuming gladly, he's assuming sacrificial responsibility, where he is uh, sending himself into the fray, unashamed and unabashed. Nothing would stop him. He fought his way through three ogres. But also this, this sense of strategy. He had the sense to bring his sword smashing on the wand instead of to try to go for her directly like everyone else had and been turned to stone. He was strategic in battle, which tells us a great deal about the, the life of the Christian, where it is certainly incumbent on us to be brave, that Jesus Jesus tells us, uh, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. That there is courage and strength and bravery to the Christian faith, but there's also strategy and cleverness and wisdom and discernment, much like a game of chess. Right? It is not enough for us to just throw ourselves into the darkness with the light that we have. We can't just throw ourselves into the battle. We need to throw ourselves into the battle fiercely, bravely, valiantly, but also wisely, uh, intellectually, strategically. And uh, I referenced Doug Wilson's definition of manhood. He has also written a book called Rules for Reformers, where he lays out this model of thinking for the Christian church, that as we go out, we are wise as serpents, but gentle as doves, that we are, um, we are discerning. We do not throw our pearls before swine. We are mindful of the time. We, are, we live selflessly, bravely, courageously, but also strategically, that we poise ourselves to make the greatest impact. We're fighting a war, after all, aren't we? Uh, that the powers of lightness, light are going against the powers of darkness. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, how are we going to do that exactly? It involves war strategy. It involves community. It involves a game plan. It involves obviously an unswerving allegiance to our king and a faithful obedience to his command, but it also involves hitting the enemy where it hurts. It involves being effective, persuasive, winsome, and strategic as Edmund was. It's also interesting that Edmund 
and not Peter, is the one that turns the tide of the battle. Devin Brown, in his book Inside Narnia, says it's often the worst sinners who make the most valiant saints. And this is a theme we'll see in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader as well with Eustace, where it's often the worst of us, the worst sinners who become the most valiant saints. They know what it is like. They know what their sin is. It's like Paul, who claimed to be the chief of sinners, that uh, to quote Robert Frost, he's one who's well acquainted with the night. Edmund was well acquainted with what it meant to sin and to be depraved. And so he can know what it's like to have a valiant and brave rejection of his former life and a full-throated loyalty to the new life that he has in Christ. And so Edmund is the one who is uh, redeemed and perhaps most dynamic of the four children. But then as Lucy is tending to Edmund's wounds, Lucy brings out the cordial from Father Christmas and tends to Edmund. And she and Aslan go about the battlefield and healing the wounded and breathing. Aslan breathes onto the stone statues that litter the battlefield. Uh, listen to how Lewis describes this change in Edmund. That He certainly demonstrated his valor and his bravery in battle. And he demonstrated his wisdom and his justice, which is what he will be known for. His, re, his regnal name, King Edmund the Just, is certainly fitting. But now listen to how he's described physically. Lewis said, Lewis says this, um, looking better than she had seen him look, Edmund was, looking better than, than Lucy had seen him look, oh, for ages, in fact, ever since his first term at that horrid school, which was where he had begun to go wrong. Listen to that. Ever since his first term at that horrid school, which was where he had begun to go wrong, he had become his real old self again and could look you in the face. And there on the field of battle, Aslan made him a knight. Now, this is one sign of many of Lewis's where he is returning to the medieval world that he loved um, very much. Lewis was an Oxford professor and a, the foremost scholar in medieval and Renaissance literature of his time. That He loved the ages of, of courtiers and nobles and kings and princes. In fact, when uh, the four children grow up in Narnia, about 15 years later or so, when they are kings and queens full grown and they're chasing the white stag, Lewis says the Narnian heir had worked on them and had altered their language. And you hear them speak in this um, sort of medieval kind of King James language. I think that's another signal of Lewis's uh, back to the Middle Ages that he, uh, that he loved. But here with this statement that Edmund was back to his real old self, the status quo ante, the way things were before, um, before that his first term at that horrid school where, quote, he had begun to go wrong. Lewis sources much, if not all, of Edmund's wrongdoing, at least that, uh, that goes beyond his own choices. Certainly he's responsible for his own sinfulness. But Lewis sources much of Edmund's wrongdoing on his horrid school. And this is something in the silver chair that Lewis explores um, a little bit more on the nose, where he has Jill and Ed, and Eustace attending, um, I think it's called Experiment House, which is uh, Lewis's not-so-veiled criticism of modern education. And this is something he maps out in The Abolition of Man as well. Lewis's um, complete rejection of many of the trends and doctrines of the modern educational system. 
where he says uh, that they make men without chests, that they, um, they can train the intellect and they can train the gut, uh, the, the physical appetites of a man, but they miss the heart. And so they create men without chests. And uh, this goes all the way back to Socrates, where you cannot educate someone with knowledge that is divorced from virtue. Knowledge and virtue cannot be separated. They can be distinguished, but they can't be separated. And, um, and Lewis believed very much in that form of education. Um, Plato once said that the object of education is to teach us to love what is beautiful. That, that education, rightly understood, is not just orienting someone toward a knowledge of the true, the good, and the beautiful, but to give them the right affections, the right love for the true, the good, and the beautiful. That education is an awakening of the heart and of the soul. It is not data transfer from one brain to another. It's not a teacher downloading facts into the open bucket of a student's mind, but rather it is an orientation. It is a um, an invitation to a rich banquet. That's what education is. It's an awakening of the imagination, the mind, the heart, the will, all of the faculties of man awakened and oriented toward a right knowledge of and a right love for the true, the good, and the beautiful, ultimately in the face of Christ, the arche, the logos, the ultimate truth. Um, and John Milton says that the, the end then of learning is to repair the ruins of our first parents, meaning Adam and Eve. That The end of learning, the purpose of learning is to repair the ruins of our first parents by regaining to know God aright, by regaining to know God and to rightly order our loves, in the words of Augustine, right? The ordo amoris, the order of our loves, to rightly align our affections and our loves in accordance with ultimate truth, goodness, and beauty. That that's what education is for. But Eustace at Experiment House with Jill in the silver chair, and certainly Edmund here with, uh, with Lucy's statement about his term at that, quote, horrid school, Lewis has a great deal to say against the modern conceptions of education that we right now in the 21st century are still unfortunately plagued by that uh, apart from the movement of classical schools and Christian schools and homeschools and that our modern public educational system is failing our students by reducing education merely down to uh, a knowledge of certain facts and the skills of a trade. Right? It's not enough to just major in college so you can get a job. Education is not utilitarian like that. It's not simply the acquisition of a certain skill or the acquisition of certain facts. If so, every student will always place second medal to Google. Google will always know more facts and know them more quickly. That's not what a human being is. And therefore, that's not how we ought to educate one. And Edmund had been failed in his education and had turned into a stinker as a result. And Lucy says as a result of his time in Narnia, he looked better than she had seen him look for ages. He had, he had become his real old self again. He could look you in the face. He was a real man. Think of Pinocchio. He was a real boy. He was not a puppet. He was not somebody who had just been taught what to think and how to do. He had been taught what to do fight nobly, and he had been taught how to think. It's the exact reverse. 
And the closing statement on this little uh, statement for education from Lewis, it says, And there on the field of battle, Aslan made him a knight. That is Lewis's fitting bow on what has happened for Edmund. He went into the wardrobe a selfish, rotten, uh, sore loser of a young man being poorly educated to simply be a cynic. And he leaves the wardrobe, King Edmund the Just. Which brings us forward to the, the next great statement of the chapter, which is one from Aslan. In fact, it's the last thing Aslan says in this book. And he says at the coronation of the four children, they go to Care Paravel. They're seated on the four thrones, just as the prophecy predicted that Mr. Beaver had informed them of. Four thrones in Care Paravel. The witch could not thwart that prophecy. And they are seated and they are crowned. And Aslan says, once a king or queen in Narnia, always a king or queen. Bear it well, sons of Adam. Bear it well, daughters of Eve. What a profound, profound declaration from Aslan. Let's break it apart. Once a king or queen in Narnia, always a king or queen. This is a truth with many, many implications. The first thought that comes to my mind is Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will see it through to the day of completion in Christ Jesus. What a promise. He who began a good work in you, he who crowned you, right? He who justified you, he who called you clean, he who imputed his righteousness to you will see it through to the day of completion. Not might, not stands to reason, not potentially could, will. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And here, Aslan says, once a king or queen in Narnia, always a king or queen. He who began a good work in you will see it through. I have crowned you a king or queen in Narnia. That is as permanent and as certain and as sure as my word ever can be. If you are declared righteous, if you are justified in Christ, you will be sanctified in Christ. If you are called clean, you will be made clean. If you are forgiven, you will stay forgiven. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is all about endurance in the faith. Right? And so th this statement from Aslan situates Peter and Susan and Edmund Lucy into this soteriological statement of salvation and perseverance. It's a beautiful comment on perseverance. And it's a beautiful comment on the location of that perseverance. How will they persevere? The source of their perseverance is located not in them, but in the one who crowned them. It's on Aslan's word that they will remain. He will keep them. He will hold them fast, just like he holds you and me fast. Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He is the keeper. So once a king or queen, always a king or queen. And also this implies many things about Susan. In the last battle, Susan is eerily absent from that great reunion in the ultimate Narnia. 
And Doug Wilson says, uh, if anybody wants to convince me that the ultimate Narnia, further up and further in, has only three thrones, well, I, I bid them good luck. That if Susan is a queen in Narnia now, she will always be a queen in Narnia. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of sanctification. It's a matter of God's good pleasure. And so this promise from Aslan, once a king or queen, always a king or queen, is sure and certain. And it tells us how we ought to parent our children. Are our children co-heirs with Christ? Will they rule over the resurrected earth for all eternity? Will they reign with Christ here on this planet for all eternity, 10,000 years and then forevermore? If so, let's start treating them that way. And let's look at them that way. They are kings and queens. They are part of, adopted into the royal family of God. And so let's train them up. Let's educate them. Let's give them bravery. Let's give them equipment. Let's give them swords and shields like Father Christmas. Let's equip them for the battle. C.S. Lewis says, since it is so likely that they will meet cruel enemies, let our children at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. This is an educational mission for parents, for teachers, for anyone. Once a king or queen, always a king or queen. And so Lewis says the children sat on their thrones and scepters were put into their hands. Look at the transfer of power and authority. God has bestowed power and authority onto the kings and queens on earth. God gives the authority. God gives the mission. God gives the Holy Spirit and equips us to be kings and queens to fight the great battle. And so they're crowned in Caerpiravel, and we get perhaps my favorite passage from Lewis on this issue of Christian revelry. Uh, You'll hear me talk about Christian revelry at the drop of every hat. It is my life's aim. It is my life's mission to pursue Christian revelry, feasting and laughter and dancing and jubilant praise and great resounding singing. And in Care Paravel, we have kings and queens crowned. And Lewis says this, And that night, there was a great feast in Care Paravel, and revelry and dancing and gold flashed and wine flowed and answering to the music inside, but stranger, sweeter, and more piercing came the music of the sea people. The great rejoicing party at Caerpiravel. This is what Christian community ought to look like. If the battle has been won, if death is working backwards when Aslan breaks the stone table, which it is, if all things have been made right, if the winter is breaking, this is not just a thaw. It promises to be a real spring. If Narnia has been awakened again, if the kings and queens long prophesied have been seated and have been crowned, how else are we supposed to behave? Let the wine flow. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Even in the face of unbelief, even in the face of great difficulty, even in the face of great trial and suffering and fear and anxiety, even when the finances aren't ready, even when the barriers are too great, You sing, you rejoice. My wife once told me when she was referencing Odysseus um, being tied to the mast of his ship when he passes the sirens in Homer's Odyssey. 
uh, his, he tells his sailors to tie him to the mast and gum up his ears so that he's not entranced by the siren song. And my wife said, you know, there are two ways to overcome the siren song. One is to ignore it, to gum up your ears and try to grit your teeth and bear it. The other is to sing louder than the siren song. That's another way of not being able to hear it and thus not succumb to it. And if anyone on this planet ought to be rejoicing bravely, valiantly, merrily, it's Christians, the kings and queens of Narnia. The battle has been won. Christ is king. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to King Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples with a smile on your face and a song in your heart and rich feasting and great dancing. This is how we ought to live. This is what will draw the world to watch and to pine and to long for. It's the joy of the Lord is our strength. Your strength is not your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And as Aslan is leaving Caraparavel, we are reminded he is wild, you know. Mr. Beaver attends the coronation and says, he's wild, you know. Not like a tame lion. Our king is not safe. He's wild. He is not safe, but he is good. He's good. He's the good. He's the only good. And he's the one true king. And he is not safe. He's not a tame lion. He's wild. And so they are crowned King Peter, the magnificent, Queen Susan, the gentle, King Edmund, the just, and Queen Lucy, the valiant. Lewis says, so they lived in great joy. And then many years later, it's suggested by Paul Ford, and I think in Lewis's own Narnian timeline that 15 years or so have passed. The Pevensey children are in their uh, mid to late 20s, ruling as kings and queens, that they find the white stag. The white stag, legend has it, if you catch it, will grant you wishes. And this recalls, this is the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but it recalls Um, a beautiful way in which the story began all the way back in chapter two, where Lucy is having tea with Mr. Tumnus. In chapter two, what Lucy found there, she is hearing tales of Narnia from Mr. Tumnus. All the way back in chapter two, it says this, he had wonderful tales. This is Mr. Tumnus. He had wonderful tales to tell of life in the forest. He told about the midnight dances and how the nymphs who lived in the wells and the dryads who lived in the trees came out to dance with the fawns about long hunting parties after the milk white stag who could give you wishes if you caught him about feasting and treasure seeking and so on. So Tumnus, all the way back in chapter two, is telling Lucy about the revelry, the feasting, the joy, the laughter of Narnia that's so typical of Narnia. It's wrong when those things are absent. The white witch is the cosmic killjoy. She's the barren queen. She's the author of sterility and blankness and hollowness. Something is wrong if there is a world with no feasting and no laughter and no singing. Now that she's been defeated, all of this is returned to Caerperavel, the image of great revelry. And now we have the white stag, the very white stag Tumnus had been talking about. And so the kings and queens, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy go to pursue the white stag. It bounds into the thicket. They uh, leave their horses. They leave the rest of their courtiers 
and they find they chase after the white stag until they find the lamppost. And Queen Susan says it looked like a tree of iron. They don't quite recollect what it is until suddenly it dawns on them that this is a lamppost of old. And they go further into the thicket, further into the woods, until they tumble out on the other side of the wardrobe, back in England, back as uh, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And they go and tell the professor that some of his fur coats are missing, <laughs> which is a great comical detail for Lewis. And the professor says this, Yes, of course you'll get back to Narnia again. Someday, once a king in Narnia, always a king in Narnia. But don't go trying to use the same route twice. Indeed, don't try to get there at all. It'll happen when you're not looking for it. What's that? How will you know? Oh, you'll know all right. Keep your eyes open. Bless me, what do they teach them at these schools? And it ends on a comical note, another jab from Lewis about what modern schools are teaching their children. But we get here the sense that the professor has been there before, which, of course, when we read The Magician's Nephew, we'll see that he has been there before as, as a young boy, Diggory Kirk. Uh, he and Polly stumble into Narnia as it is being sung into existence by Aslan. But here he assures them, yes, of course, you'll get back to Narnia. Once a king, always a king. We get this great assurance that there are more tales to be told, that there is more to the adventure. But then he interestingly says, don't go trying to use the same route twice. Indeed, don't try to get there at all. Now, it's true that you can get to Narnia more than once through, this, through the wardrobe, through the same door. Remember, both Edmund and Lucy were able to go through the, Narn through the wardrobe to Narnia more than once. But the point here is, is the statement the professor follows with, where he says, don't try to get there at all. It'll happen when you're not looking for it. And this is such a beautiful reminder to us about the glory of God, the glory of life in Christ, where if you try to manufacture it and distill it down to a formula, which, again, looking forward to the magician's nephew, this is what Uncle Andrew tries to do. He tries to harness the power of magic and turn it into some system or some means of profit, some means of gain. He tries to exploit the magic for his own selfish means. It's like in the movie Tangled, where uh, Mother Gothel tries to exploit the magic of Rapunzel's hair for her own benefit. The professor here is warning the kids, don't try to micromanage, don't try to systematize or manufacture the magic, the deeper magic of Narnia. It will happen when you're not looking for it. And there's so much truth, there's so much truth about the glory of God and the glory of life embedded in that statement. Now, yes, we are meant to study the scriptures. We are meant to pursue God. We are meant to examine creation. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. And it's the glory of kings to find it out. And there is a benefit to searching and seeking and looking. But there's also a benefit in letting the story unfold in front of you. There's a benefit to being lost in the wonder of it all. Socrates says wisdom begins in wonder. There's a beauty to returning to this childlike sense of faith where it'll happen when you're not looking for it. It's much like falling in love. 
if you try to fall in love, if you try to manufacture love, if you try to fabricate and formalize and try to come up with some system that works every time, you don't have love. But if it happens when you're not looking for it, it becomes the greatest thing of all. And he says, you'll know it. There's not, there's not a quick shortcut to this thing. There's not a, a crib sheet. You'll know it when you see it. You'll know other people who have been to Narnia when you see them. And then his final exhortation, keep your eyes open. I imagine if there's any way I could encourage my students and encourage my children on how best to live a life that honors God, those four words will do. Keep your eyes open. Jesus says it to his disciples. Could you not stay awake? Keep your eyes open. Taste and see. Taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And that is the very end of the adventure of the wardrobe. But if if the professor was right, it was only the beginning of the adventures of Narnia. And so closes the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next time as we start the next book in the Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian.